Hello and welcome to another audio edition of Columbia Insight, bringing independent environmental journalism to the communities of the Columbia River Basin. My name is Dak Collins and I'll be your host as we dive into today's topic, bringing salmon back to the upper Columbia River. So what exactly happened to salmon in the upper Columbia? Well, like many questions, this one begs an extremely complex and long-winded answer. The steady decline of salmon throughout the Columbia River Basin has been compared to a death by a thousand cuts, and it would take far too long to analyze each and every one of those cuts in detail. However, there is one cut, more like a gash really, that stands out among the rest. That's because it's 46 stories tall and contains enough concrete to build a sidewalk around the equator, twice. Grand Coulee Dam also generates about 21 billion kilowatt hours of electricity annually, which is enough power to supply roughly 4.2 million households for a year, making it the single largest power station in the United States. But the dam giveth and the dam taketh away, and for all the benefits that it provided and continues to provide for the human residents of the basin, including electricity, flood control, and irrigation water for agriculture, the dam was constructed without fish ladders or fish passage of any kind. So when it was completed in 1942, Grand Coulee Dam blocked off the upstream migration of salmon. Runs that were already suffering from the impacts of overfishing and the proliferation of canneries downstream were extirpated seemingly overnight. It also formed a new reservoir, Lake Roosevelt, which inundated Kettle Falls, one of the most important fishing grounds and gathering places for Native Americans in the Northwest. That's Rodney Coston, chairman of the Colvo Business Council and a tribal leader on the Colvo Reservation. Located in north-central Washington along a stretch of the Columbia that is now Lake Roosevelt, the reservation is home to a dozen unique tribes, including the Chelan, Okanagan, Wenatchee, Sandpoil, and Methow bands that merged around the turn of the 20th century to form the Confederated Tribes of the Colvo Reservation. And although these tribes traditionally inhabited different parts of eastern Washington and Idaho, They all shared a deep connection to salmon, as they depended on the fish, both as a food source and as a central part of their religion and cultural identity. There are 12 tribes, you know, on the Colville Reservation. And all of our tribes basically um, have a salmon culture. And, you know, although many of the tribes were moved onto the reservation, um, you know, we have never given up our language, our culture, or our, our traditional ways, our religion. And, you know, the salmon are such an integral part of that. You know, it's like to a Catholic, you have to have a host and wine or whatever you do that's really integral to the ceremony. Well, for us, you know, that's one of the most respectful ways that we can show to our community and to ourselves and to our elders is to have those foods there, you know, especially during ceremonial or religious, you know, dinners that we have throughout the year. Chairman Coston talks a lot about the salmon traditions, the dances, prayers, songs, and stories that have been handed down from generation to generation. And even though salmon disappeared from the upper river long before he was born, Coston says the stories live on. So for our ancestors, you know, and our elders that we've heard through time, you know, because salmon have now um, been blocked 
from the Upper Columbia for about 80 years now. And so that was way before my time, but yet we've had stories from our elders, you know, who, you know, who shared with us what it was like for them. I can remember this one time, um, I was at a winter dance and this elder man got up and he sang his song and he spoke as well. And he talked about the deer meat, the big game, and, and mostly about the fish and about the camps. And he said, you know, that the time when he remembered, you know, when our people fished all along the upper Columbia and, and the tributaries like the San Poil and the Okanagan. And he said it was really a happy time for our people, you know, when they knew the salmon were going to come back up. And we had our ceremonial dinners and paying that respect. And he just said that people came from all over, you know, from Canada, from the plains, from the coast. They were just, you know, Kettle Falls was one of the largest fishing sites, one of the most ancient fishing sites on the Columbia, which is just north of our reservation. Yep. And he said that you could see people fishing and these people coming back um, from all in different directions and, you know, the reunification of families and friends and, you know, the, the gaming and everything else, the different social events that they would have all throughout the summertime. And he said, but one thing that he said, I'll always stand out in my mind is seeing all of the fish and the fish drying racks along the Columbia and the sand foil that, you know, where you, you see the fish uh, and people cutting and wind drying them and preparing them, you know, for future use. He said that it was really an abundant food. It was just there for us. You know, the creator put that food there for us. As Costin explains, though, the narrative shifted when the salmon run stopped. And seven years after the ceremony of tears took place, construction on Chief Joseph Dam began a short ways downstream. Like Grand Coulee, but unlike the other nine mainstem dams located further down the river, it was also built without fish passage in mind. And upon its completion in 1979, it became the new end of the road for Pacific salmon swimming up the Columbia River. And just like that, one of the world's greatest salmon superhighways was cut in half. You know, the, the river is not the same that it was once the, the dams were constructed. You know, so much has changed there. And, you know, for one thing, you know, the, the blockage, you know, has the, the, the bed of the river is no longer the same. You know, there's a lot of sedimentation that has been built up, you know, throughout the years. Um, invasive, you know, species, you know, like northern pike have been um, introduced there. And that's something that, you know, we've been trying to deal with as a tribe for many years now. Um, and and plus, the you know, anything above the dams is just like a food desert because there hasn't been no nutrient, you know, cycling. And we know that, you know, there wasn't just the native people, but it was also a lot of different plants and fish and wildlife. You know, that DNA of that salmon was carried off into the forests and um, so many things benefited from its presence being there. Well, that has, been, has not been there for 80 years now. Now, regardless of how you feel about dams, their beneficial role in modern society and the sacrifices they represent, you cannot talk about the Columbia River today without at least acknowledging the drastic shift that took place nearly 80 years ago. But the story of the Columbia River and its salmon is still being written, and with efforts to reintroduce the fish above Chief Joe and Grand Coulee currently underway, we are now witnessing the start of a new chapter in the river's history. John Cyrus is a committee coordinator with the Upper Columbia United Tribes, or UCUT, which represents and provides a common voice for five tribes in the Upper Columbia region. 
a group that includes not only the Confederated Tribes of the Colville Reservation, but also the Coeur d'Alene Tribe, the Kootenai Tribe of Idaho, and the Kalispell and Spokane Tribes. And Cyrus explains that bringing salmon back to the Upper Columbia has been a major concern of these tribes since construction on Grand Coulee Dam began in the 1930s. So in terms of this as an idea, I think on the tribal side, we've been working on this for quite some time and has been a concern since... You know, they started working on Grand Coulee Dam. One of the one of the tribes of Yukut on the Cobble started their lawsuit against the federal government in 1934-35 to prevent the dam from being built. And it took 60 years for for that court case to make its way through the the system. Eventually, it got um, legislatively settled by Congress. It wasn't until the last 20 years or so, as stocks continued to dwindle in the mid-lower reaches of the river and several distinct runs were placed on the endangered species list, that the idea started to gain more traction among resource managers in the Northwest. And about five years ago, efforts to reintroduce salmon in the Upper Columbia began in earnest. I think in 2002, there was an intermountain basin um, study that called for an investigation of fish passage into those blocked areas. But very little resources or effort was put into it. And a lot of those those efforts are very similar. Um, I guess the difference this time around was that um, the, the tribes, instead of waiting for one of the federal agencies or one of the state agencies to, to or the hydropower system to really tackle this and do it, we decided to put our own money toward it and make it a reality. So uh, you know, I think... For, for tribes, it was uh, just a galvanizing moment that, you know, we, we just got to do this. It's, you know, there, there's no other, we can't wait any longer. Uh, we've waited long enough, and we're going to start, um, start the process. That process involves a phased approach to reintroduction. Phase one was essentially an in-depth, years-long study that looked at a number of factors, such as the quality of spawning habitat in the Upper Columbian major tributaries, the availability of donor stocks, and potential strategies for transporting fish above the two major dams. The phase one report was prepared and released by UCUT in May of this year, and looking at sockeye salmon alone, the report found that historically, 65% of the entire Columbia River Basin sockeye population would pass upstream of where Chief Joseph Dam is now located. And during that pre-dam era, it is estimated that the annual harvest of sockeye by Columbia Basin tribes and Canadian First Nations was somewhere between 2.9 and 3.5 million fish. Fast forward to today, and statistics show that less than 100,000 sockeye returned to the entire basin last year. But going back to the Phase 1 report and some of its more encouraging takeaways, the report also found that opening up the blocked area above the two dams would provide more than 700 miles of spawning and rearing habitat for spring Chinook and over 1,600 miles of habitat for summer steelhead. And as the study points out, this upper stretch of river is naturally cooler than the mid and lower reaches, making it more resilient to the effects of climate change. We've built up a lot of momentum and I think inspired a lot of folks that that uh, previously didn't, didn't really think much about, they, they were highly skeptical of our, of, of our plan, or, you know, they just, you know, weren't really bought into it, but seeing those those releases and, and after they've uh, read the report and 
and talk to folks like, yeah, this is really possible. This is something that, you know, we can do this. So um, it's it's really starting to garner or gain a lot of um, support. So we're really excited about it. We're right there um, in transit and into phase two that looks at experimental releases, um, studying what kinds of uh, passage facilities uh, could could work in, in doing those studies and experiments on, you know, really examining uh, what's been used at different areas. What what are some of the uh, learned lessons, I guess, that that really can provide some insight into all this, and really, really um, developing out that that strong, uh, I guess, partnership with our federal and state um, agencies. Another motivating factor that has bolstered these reintroduction efforts is the Columbia River Treaty, which was ratified by the United States and Canada in 1964 in order to prevent flooding in downriver cities like Portland and to ensure more reliable hydropower production at various power generation dams along the river. That treaty is set to expire in 2024, and negotiations are currently taking place between the two countries. A key question in these negotiations is whether or not ecosystem-based function should be considered when determining how the river is managed in the future. In other words, should river managers and dam operators take the needs of salmon and other native species into account? And if it is possible to manage the dams in a way that benefits salmon and the ecosystem as a whole while still addressing the primary goals of flood control and hydropower production, why not change the status quo? So for Chairman Coss and the other tribal leaders in the U.S. and Canada, the renegotiations represent the perfect opportunity to right or to at least address some of the wrongs of the river's past. Since, you know, the, the, they began looking at the Columbia River Treaty and its renegotiation, you know, we as tribes looked at that as an opportunity for us to be, really see that we could really push for that resource to come back up into the upper Columbia. We have to get our fish back. We can't let our future generations, you know, that identity of who they are, our religion, our culture, and everything that is so important and so integral to us, and we need that uh, resource back. There's a lot of politics around it as well that I'm sure you're aware of um, when it comes to water usage and um, shaping of water that, that can affect um, hydropower systems, that can affect you know, a lot of different things, flood flood risk and um, but we've attempted to as much as possible minimize any of those those impacts you know to look at how this could be achieved so you know as as the negotiators from both countries are finding out or um, you know we they know it but you know I think in some ways um, people when they live in their own areas they don't think about it it's one river and and you know it, it knows no bounds it knows no borders and the Canadians feel like, hey, you know, we really need that salmon back. We we would like to have that salmon in its, you know, in its areas where it needs to be. So um, when we, as a region, when we developed the regional recommendation, um, tribes uh, united, 15 tribes of the Columbia Basin united to uh, push for ecosystem function um, as a third leg of that of that stool that, that uh, the Columbia Retreat rests on, flood yeah. control and hydropower production. Um, you know, they said, no, this needs to be a third leg, ecosystem function, and part of that is fish passage. 
Now this brings us to a very important question, and that is, how exactly are we supposed to get salmon above these two huge dams? Interwoosh Innovations, a Seattle-based company that has come up with a new solution for transporting fish. Known as the Passage Portal, the modern-day fish ladder works like this. First, the fish swims into the system via a short ramp that features an attraction flow. It then passes through a scanner, which takes 18 rapid-fire images that determine the species, length, girth, and other details about the fish. From there, it is sorted and directed into the appropriate fish migrator tube, which is a flexible misted tube that uses the principle of pressure differential to gently push the fish uphill. The fish then glides up past the dam and is released on the other end of the migrator tube. The migrator tube, which has also been dubbed the salmon cannon, has been utilized at dams and hatcheries throughout Washington State for the past five years or so. And Woosh's CEO, Vince Bryan, explains that in that time, dozens of studies have been conducted to prove the tube will not harm fish, and that it is actually safer and less stressful on the fish than traditional fish ladders. Press calls it the salmon cannon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, uh, we, we, we are calling it uh, salmon cannon with a C-A-N-O-N rather than the double N. Um, and uh, it, it was meaning more, you know, the salmon truth here. I mean, what we're, it's, let's, let's really address the root cause of the problems. Let's deal with the facts and data and take the politics out of this and let's apply technology to the problem. You always have those um, folks who are, are skeptical, but our general experience with the biologists have been, if they come in that way, if they actually come to see the system, it takes them about... Uh, five minutes to understand that it's not going to hurt the fish. Um, it, it really is um, because they know what they're doing today with the fish, and they go, "Well, this, this, this is a, this is a, a non-event." I, from the fish's perspective, it's a, uh, it's they swim in, they slide, and they glide. But the fish migrator tube is only one component of the passage portal. And Brian says that constructing a fully autonomous volitional fish passage system was always the ultimate goal of the company. The goal has always been to have a volitional system, but we um, we had to prove to ourselves as well as to the regulatory agencies that the process of the fish going through the tube alone um, was not uh, going to injure the fish or um, be stressful on the fish or, and, and so forth. So... So we built a simple system um, at that point before spending all of the dollars that was going to be required to do a full fish passage uh, project. And so that's that. the initial uh, focus on the company was let's make sure that the transport part of this is okay. Um, and, if, and if it's uh, okay for the fish, um, then, then we'll uh, take the other steps that, uh, that were in the original plan. It caused some confusion uh, along the way because people uh, would see the hand feeding and think well, that's never going to that's not that's not a practical solution for going over a dam and we <laughs> and we would always agree with it. No, this uh, the, the intention is, um, and that's what save when we said save fish passage project. It's selective, uh, so we're selecting which fish go over autonomous, volitional, and economical. So in order to prove that the Save Fish Passage system could be a viable way of transporting fish above the two major dams, there was a demonstration of the barge-mounted system at Chief Joseph on September 10th. Yeah, well, uh, during the demonstration itself, uh, no fish passed through. (laughs) So so from that standpoint, uh, people were, um, it may have been 
and disappointed that they didn't actually see the fish go through. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, the, <laughs> you can't, that's one thing you can't control when you set a date. Um, it's it's uh, you hope for the best. What we were hoping would happen was that uh, um, we'd have an opportunity to see uh, fish going up to the top. And um, and then we actually did a U-turn at the top with the with the uh, tube, and we brought them all the the tube all the way back down to the water, um, and they to be released into the tail race. And we were limited to well, a total of ninety fish, thirty fish on any given uh, day for the uh, demo. And uh, but that did not happen um, during the two-hour window that we had there. So. Having said that, I think everybody was, um, we didn't have any complaints about that, which uh, surprised me and and was a relief in some respects uh, because the system itself was, uh, it was just impressive. Brian says the demonstration that took place on September 10th also served as a milestone for the tribes, government agencies, and resource managers who have worked together to move the reintroduction project forward and into phase two. For the tribes, uh, it was um, we had a number of tribal members come up to us and say, you know, when uh, we had school children there that came in with their teachers and so forth, they wanted to be there because for uh, for them it was an event that they will remember, um, uh, you know, years from now. Is is that this is this is when it it became real, um, you know, the, the possibility of going over uh, the the unlattered dams, if you will, of the Upper Columbia. We think that there's a lot of reason to, to, to want to continue to advance this. It has something to do, though, with the, uh, you know, we're trying to fit into the um, Power Council's phased plan approach of reintroduction. Um, and they're right between phase one and phase two right now. Phase two had um, testing of fish passage systems in uh, in the Columbia uh, above above Chief Joseph Dam. So for us, this was a technical demonstration this year. Hopefully next year, it's about actually passage um, as part of that uh, phased plan. Whether that happens next year or not is not something we can control. So we're, um, but, but we're, we're um, trying to work with all the parties there on their schedule and at the same time encouraging them to move as quickly as they can now they know that there's there's a way of doing it um so so now let's actually do it you know i think in a lot of ways this the 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 advent of new technologies um well we we call them new technologies but they're really old you know (laughs) they've been around a while like they they use that that negative air pressure and the i don't know if you're old enough to remember the bank you know, the and tubes. You yeah. Up to the drive-through, and, oh, yeah. and it goes over. It's same thing. It's a, it's that's hilarious. Yeah. Um, but just finding new innovative ways to use it and to um, <laughs> apply it to to different things is is I think another a testament to you know humans' creativity and, and our ingenuity. So I think um, these new technologies are. Coming at, at the right time, it's a perfect time for them. So, so with Woosh, um, you know, they've got some amazing things that, that you know they can. Some of their technology can be used for 
um, identifying predators once they enter into this this volitional system they, they can take pictures and shoot you know predatory fish off this one way you know ESA listed fish go in this other way and return right. to the river separate hatchery fish. fish too and all that well, yeah But as Cyrus and Brian both realize, implementing this technology will require buy-in from all sides, including the federal agencies that operate the dams. So moving forward, a big part of Phase 2 will be convincing these stakeholders that passing fish over Chief Joe and Grand Coulee is something worth investing in. You know, it's pretty clear that people want to see it happen. Yeah. But I think that that specter of how much is this going to cost is, is the primary... Um, primary fear that that gets spread like well we can't afford it and you know who's going to pay for it and you know sometimes you know depending on my on my mood i try to make sure you know professional but i i i usually respond with like well we decided it was a priority to build these dams as as a country as a country we can decide that it's a priority to make these fish fish passage a reality and we will pay for it you know and so that you know and a lot of people like yeah that's right we'll do it we'll do it (laughs) and um you know it's around that that model of like you know we can look for water on mars but we can't figure out how to push put put a salmon you know make a fish passage happen at at these dams right i think we can do i think we can do better i know we can do better the technology is there It's, it's now it's about changing the policies which allow the and uh, and and funding. Where where are you putting your funding dollars to allow th- these changes to take place? Um, and uh, and you know we <laughs> we have to get uh, we have to get all these experts uh, that have been in these fields for and doing this stuff for thirty or forty years to either change their mind from what they've been doing these years. And that's tough if you're admitting that maybe they maybe maybe that wasn't the best thing to have been doing um, or um, you've, you've got to um, bring in the uh, a younger generation of uh, biologists and so forth that are more con- comfortable with technology and um, and all those things are playing themselves out here and we're we're here um, in a space that's that's not used to uh, uh, innovation happening at the pace that it that it happens. This is why we're we have this sense of urgency that um, we can't go fast enough here, <laughs> uh, because because of um, we we think we just think this is a total game changer. It's now time to um, at, to take the step, I guess. If um, and this is the this is the. Uh, the argument that I make to the hydro industry is you, that that as a renewable energy source, um, they have a tremendous opportunity here to change the narrative around that they what they are doing to um, improve fish passage from what it has been in the past and to to take a leading role in that. Um, um, I think there's my impression over the years has been they they want to help the fish, um, but they've been very frustrated at times by the uh, regulatory environment that they've been involved in, that they can spend millions and millions of dollars on on something that they know isn't going to work. And uh, and so we had to uh, force the issue a bit 
Um, and that's it really drove our decision to to move ahead with this uh, Chief Joseph project, uh, whether we could se- secure grant funding or not. Um, uh, it, it's we we could be just waiting around for years, I guess, we, uh, for that to happen, um, and or we can just do it. So although the fate of salmon in the Upper Columbia remains uncertain at best, these positive can-do attitudes tend to be contagious. And as Phase 2 moves forward, and more people begin to realize that the reintroduction of fish above Chief Joe and Grand Coulee is not only attainable, but is vital to restoring the natural balance of the Columbia River Basin, tribal leaders like Chairman Costin believe that the workable solutions will work themselves out in the process. Thank you.